One of the biggest challenges we faced, which I guess forced our hands in the earlier days to make certain trade-offs, was the technical challenges that came with building a meaningful product that actually gave a merchant ultimate flexibility to reach their customers on all facets like email and SMS. You know, how can you have a hub with so much intelligence on each instance of every store without building a server and archetype that is financially viable for a bootstrap startup at the time? The solution for this is obviously you know, very technical, but we basically designed our earliest MVP in a way that we only use resources when needed. My name is Liam Gerada. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Krepling. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Liam Gerada has built a scalable and flexible platform built for modern e-commerce experiences. All this and more on Code Story. Liam Dorada comes from an e-commerce background, building websites, stores, etc. He is passionate about providing people ways to find cheaper products through online commerce. Liam loves to solve problems and finds it is hard to find a replacement hobby now that his hobby has become his full-time gig. He and his brother have worked together for years as they do now on their current venture. They grew up in Malta, which is an amazing gem in the Mediterranean. Liam and his brother were merchants, building their own e-commerce store around five to six years ago. From that perspective, they saw very early on that there was a movement towards a headless platform. They weren't developers at the time, which most merchants aren't, and they struggled and felt there must be a better way. This is the creation story of Krepling. Krepling, simply put, is a no-code e-commerce platform looking to enable the, the next generation of e-commerce. You've seen this, this, this wave of different commerce platforms coming out. You know, the way e-commerce, is, as you can imagine, has changed rapidly over the last, even last two years, I'd say, nowadays. But over the last 10 years, things have really just taken off in terms of how, what it takes to run an e-commerce store. And what Krepling really is, is we're, we're bridging the gap between what is considered enterprise commerce and no-code commerce. Nowadays, if you want to create a modern e-commerce, that of matching the like of Nike or other billion-dollar companies or DDC companies out there, that usually requires you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in, 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 in monthly fees for engineering teams, for the platforms, for, for multi, multi, multi-facet integrations. We're bringing that, we're democratizing that to a, a $35 a month fee whilst, whilst not writing a single line of code. So that very simply is, yeah, that is Krepling. We call it a no-code e-commerce platform, democratizing modern commerce. We were lovers in e-commerce from the merchant standpoint for a long time. We started off building our own e-commerce store almost five, six years ago now. And, you know, being on that side of the, of the spectrum, you, you're kind of, you're inclined to see what, where the industry's going, what the, the traits are, where the, the trends are going. Um, and we saw very early on, there was this, this wave and this movement to a headless based platform or to a much more intensified, um, platform that, that merchants were looking for. Being e-commerce merchants, you want to keep up with the pace. You want to be able to reach your customers um, on email, SMS, and be able to be as competitive as you can. So we ended up graduating from our our no-code platform and moved to a headless platform. And of course, we weren't really developers at the time. And, you know, most merchants aren't developers. And we struggled. 
So we thought, you know, there's got to be an easy way to do this. And you know, I think it just came up as an idea. You know, let's try and build a prototype that is that is an easier way to, to, to launch and run a modern e-commerce store that can integrate with all the best product that's on all facets and that is completely no code. So it was just kind of a prototype to solve almost our own problem in that sense, um, which eventually became a, a, a problem that many other merchants had as well. And we made that basically our MVP was our own prototype. Um, we began giving to other merchants that we knew within our spaces. Um, our previous company then got acquired, which gave us the ability to focus full time on this problem we wanted to solve. A newfound passion for the SaaS side of e-commerce was pretty much born at that, that point. Tell me about the MVP, so that first product you built. How long did it take you to build, and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? We started off building um, the core infrastructure um, and all the core functionalities of a modern e-commerce store, what you'd expect to see in a modern e-commerce website like Nike or, or any of that, um, and building a system that can support all the scalable resources that merchants are demanding. As you can imagine, you know, building a, a, a full-scale MVP is very, very difficult. One of the challenges we faced early on was, you know, if we had to rebuild an e-commerce platform in this age, in this new era of e-commerce, what would that look like? Um, and this obviously took, it took around two or three years to actually build a product that we could go to market with. You know, many of the decisions we made, many of the uh, archetype processes we went through were quite complex at first, but eventually, I think after two or three years, we had a product that we could hand on heart say is, is, is competitive um, and we could actually build and provide value to merchants. So with that first MVP, though, you, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs around, you know, maybe technical debt or feature cut or what you're going to focus on first. Tell me about some of those decisions that you had to make and how you coped with them. One of the biggest challenges we faced, um, which I guess forced our hands in the earlier days to make certain trade-offs, was the technical challenges that came with building a meaningful product that actually gave a merchant ultimate flexibility to reach their customers on all facets like email and SMS. You know, how can you have a hub with so much intelligence on each instance of every store without building a server and archetype that is financially viable for a bootstrap startup at the time? The solution for this is obviously you know, very technical, but we basically designed our earliest MVP in a way that we only use resources when needed. Of course, that is a, you know, a lot more focus on all the infrastructure we, st we are still building today, but this allowed us to, to offer a solution that was not only viable for us as founders, but also to offer a product that was reasonably priced for merchants, which we felt was actually something that was going to be crucial to whether we can actually achieve meaningful product market fit early on, because we knew that in order to, you know, for headless offerings or for downstream no-code offerings like Shopify, they would need to charge a huge multiple on top of what they're already charging to provide a meaningful scalability to merchants. And we believed solving that that was rooted in with how the product was built and how we can how it can serve certain merchants. And this archetype, you know, coupled with a microservice approach, actually delivers real concrete value to merchants. You know, for example, if you want to create an integration where you run a newsletter every time someone abandons their cart under $25 and you want to send an email to them, track that via HubSpot and send them a discount code via Clavio, um, you can do that without actually adding more resource uh, issues or more resource demand from your system. And as a merchant, you're not paying any additional for that, for the, those additional resources. 
And I think, you know, also one of the big trade-offs we had, you know, decisions we had to make early on was, you know, what type of front-end technology was was viable for a system like this. I think all front-end technologies come with their boilerplates and we wanted to benchmark from all the solid enough front-end languages. And we ended up selecting a language that would actually be more beneficial to store owners for loading time, which simply makes stores load faster. So these are the kind of things that, you know, I think that we took into took into our decision making early on and the whole philosophy was you know what are the other companies doing or what could they what would they like to have changed if they could start again and it seems the list was pretty long so that was initially how i would say the decisions what the decisions looked like when when building out the mvp which probably couples into the fact why it took so long (laughs) from the mvp Right. How did you progress the product and how did you mature it? And I think when I'm, to put that kind of in a box, how did you build your roadmap and how did you figure out, okay, this is the next most important thing to build? I think if I was to be completely candid, we didn't really have a, a clear sort of roadmap in terms of what we wanted to build. Um, I would say we really left that power to the merchants. In the earlier days, we, we were literally just there were two of us, maybe one additional. We really knew that if we're going to find product market fit and scale the way that was both beneficial to us and was actually providing value, so scaling and actually providing value to merchants, we knew we we're going to have to to focus on those those things that that merchants were demanding most. And our roadmap was kind of pay-as-you-go kind of structure where we would couple with what merchants were looking for, what the demand was like within the bigger merchants on our platform and even the smaller merchants and see what that demand really looked like, what features they were looking for, um, what some of the, the, the changes in e-commerce, what, what that was looking like, what we initially thought as founders, where the industry was going. And that roadmap built along that, built along those, along those premises. To give you an example of what that looked like, we would focus primarily on selecting best-of-breed integrations that provide merchants best value. So, for example, if we felt that apps like Clavio and HubSpot were market leaders in providing great email to, to, to inventory management services, we'd select those and deliver those to our merchants as opposed to focusing primarily on dropshipping, for example, uh, whichever, we, whichever we felt was in demand with our current user base. As we began to scale, we, we started thinking more of how do we, you know, transform a product and actually mature it where we can hand on heart say this is the best e-commerce platform in the industry. At the time, candidly as well, we knew that we weren't exactly where we wanted to be. The product was definitely not the best there was out there, um, but we knew to get to that level, we need to obviously scale, but also provide value at all levels. So I think the, the, the maturing of the product really started taking shape six or seven months ago when we sort of focused more on where e-commerce was going as opposed to where our customers were demanding. Um, and I think having a 360-degree view of your e-commerce store is what any merchant wants to have. They want to be able to reach their customers in all places. And in the day, create a store that is scalable and it's, that is, and it's successful. And to do that, you need to be on all facets where your customers are. So with that very simple, concrete idea, I think our, our platform transformed tremendously. I really like what you said about starting to go where the industry was going versus just building what your customers are asking for. That's such a balancing act between providing and knowing what you, even your customers don't know what to ask for. Yeah, I think, you know, especially in such a trance, an industry like e-commerce that is changing rapid, more rapidly than anyone could actually foresee to be able to for, for a merchant, for anyone to be able to foresee that is is difficult. And I think a lot of a lot of merchants nowadays c- can't quite see where the industry is really going. And I think to be able to stay on top of that is not only a challenge, but I think it's something that 
yeah, exactly. You said you need to be able to you need to be able to foresee that. Let's switch to team. So, how did you go about building your team, and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? I think our hiring structure, yeah, it was very difficult at first. I personally think people are so multidimensional, you know, that reducing it down to looking for a certain trait of characteristics was definitely a challenge within itself. Over the time I've personally spent interviewing and hiring, and definitely our, our team has spent over hiring, we found that hiring people who actually care about what they do is by far the most valuable trait you can look for in any person. Um, you know, in actual empirical studies, when you poll a group of people, there are actually numerous ways you can obviously aggregate that group's knowledge. But aggregating the individual knowledge, I feel, is where the challenge really does lie. And I think it works both ways in the sense for the one who's looking to be hired and the one who is, is hiring. For us, there's no real future if we hire people who don't resonate with our mission, um, who don't resonate with our product or the problem we're solving. And, and people who care about what they are doing will generally do, do great things, generally speaking. Um, have it, you know, having it set in stone to what you need to look for in a person can often hurt the overall mission. I found that it's kind of the focus that builds great, it's kind of the, you know, the core focus of building a great company um, is making it cult-driven as opposed to credential-driven. You know, somewhere like Harvard or Stanford is very credential-driven. People choose to go there because it signals other people that you're intelligent and capable. Companies that are credential have a great top funnel numbers, much like these college administrations, but there's a constant churn of smart, capable people who leave in just a few years. If you're building a culture that's specific and identifying likable traits in a swarm of people that are hugely different and identifies capable on different levels, you're going to miss those who truly love what they do and are good at what they do. So I think that's kind of the approach we took was there's no sort of set in motion. We wanted to create a process that is easy and is is built towards people. Um, obviously, you, you, need, you can't get it right every time, but we, we aim to just hire people that are truly love what they do and are good at what they do and, and loving what you do is probably and care about what you do is probably the, the number one trait we found was or I personally think is is what we look for and what provides the most value so let's flip the scalability did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or have you been fighting this as you've grown and gained traction in terms of the core, core architecture, we, we definitely built it in a way that was built to scale from day one. We knew particularly what, what we're building, it needs to be, needs to be scalable, both from a, from a product standpoint and also for the, for the user standpoint. If you're able to reach a million customers overnight, you should be able to scale. So I think from an architecture standpoint, we, we definitely built a scalable, something that we, we hope was scalable from, from day one. But we hoped to build something. It was built for the future and it could, and could survive and we could, we could have this company that just rides through every wave like it's nothing. But of course, that's, that's never reality. A good example of that was when you know, COVID had hit. That was probably just this moment of we need to just change stuff and revamp certain functionality in order to provide value to these thousands of people who millions of people at a certain point who need to be online now. Definitely, there's this idea that you can build something that can scale throughout whatever. But I don't, for us, it definitely that definitely wasn't what was reality. So I think we're, we're constantly fighting to build a build a product that is that is serving merchants of today and the merchants of tomorrow as well. So I think it's it's definitely this constant battle to ensure that you know as a product and as a team, you're thinking about five years in, in the future, and those that future is changing almost every month. I'd say, especially especially nowadays. So it's definitely been this this constant constant battle. I'd say to, to make sure that we are 
we're staying on top of what is to come. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? Definitely being able to to democratize. I would say at least providers. I would say we're definitely most proud of being able to democratize certain standards of the economy. You know, vaguely put, which is being able to allow people to actually chase their dreams and build something that is that they want to do. You know, I look back when we were in high school, we wanted to build an idea, build a store, and build something that is that mean meaningful to us. And I think there's great pride in building a technology that can that can enable people to to do what they want to do and build what they want to do. That's I think I think when we stand back and hopefully by you know <laughs> when we look at Crapling twenty thirty years from now we can we can say that that was that was the mission we accomplished which was have a world that is completely online based and you can make a decision or purchase any product wherever you want however you can and I think there's a lot of a lot of I would say pride in, in being able to build something that can at least enable a, a facet of that. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Plenty of <laughs> earlier mistakes. Definitely one of the, the earlier mistakes we made was focusing, I think, shifting our focus to be more scalable driven than, 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 than product driven. I think, you know, I can recall almost a year ago, we were, we were going through this phase of, of, of tremendous, a tremendous growth phase where we were seeing, you know, monthly growth rates of even excess of 30%. And obviously you get caught up when your product is growing so rapidly, you, you want to be able to continue to grow. If you're growing that rate, you, in order to grow for the future generation of user bases and reach those users that aren't these, you know, trying out new products, you're going to have to build a product that is actually meaningful and scalable, and you you cannot put the the burner on for for the for the actual product. So, I think yeah, that was an early mistake we made was was when we started growing, we we sort of focused more on growth as opposed to building our product, and I think we shifted that to focusing, you know. Not going after the tremendous growth with the, the the early stage adopters, but building a product that can grow with the adopters who will stay and, and, and will actually build meaningful e-commerce websites. And I think that's probably the correction we made was actually to, to realize that the nonsensical idea of focusing purely on growth isn't the right thing to do, or especially earlier stage, which would go against a lot of the, the sort of bed and bread and butter of what building a startup is in the earlier days. But I think if you're going to build something that is meaningful in the long run you, you have to be able to do both i think that's that's the correction we made of a mindset correction as opposed to a a actual technical correction <laughs> so what does the future look like for the product and for your team the team's growing quite rapidly we're, we're, we're expanding geographically as well um we're kind of in this phase of growth in the team side of things our product is always growing we're always looking to keep keep growth nice and we, we, we do see a lot of we're excited with the root crappling is on that I'm particularly excited about where we're going in terms of you know, who's joining the team and what the team's looking like and how we're shaping up the actual culture of what Crappling means to, to its employees as opposed to just its just as the merchants and, and those who adopt it. And, you know, continuing to find product market fit, I think, is we're at the stage where we, we're on the border between having a product that is really, we know exactly where and who it can serve best in such a growing and readily adopting industry. So... It's definitely exciting. Um, looking forward to the next couple of years. <laughs> well, let's switch to you, Liam. So who influences the way that you work? Name a person you look up to and why. I'd like to learn from anyone who's built something really meaningful in the world, as opposed to learning from just you know one individual who's done something great. I think there are many great builders of the world, and I think any product that I've used, I tend to go to who's built it and see what, what their journey looked like and hope to learn from you know, the challenges they face. 
I love to draw inspiration from as many people as I possibly can. Um, and I think that's probably most of my inspiration will come from a, a couple of, of, of really great builders in the world. Okay, we talked about a mistake right earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? I'd, I'd definitely say the, the, the focus, I would say that one of the things we changed would be our outlook on, on certain parts of the company. I think early on, you, you almost, you're very focused primarily on growing, building a great product, finding product market fit. I think I think those are always the, the primary focuses early on. But if I had to go back, I think I'd definitely pay more attention, focus more on what this company could actually internally and what the internal landscape, internal culture of what you're trying to build would look like. Um, which is obviously, you know, when you're an early stage founder, you, you, you're, not, you're not considering that. You're, you're, you're considering, you know, can you even get through to the next month or what does burn look like? Do you need to fundraise? Do you need to, does the product need to change? Does UI need to change? There's 101 things you're thinking about, of course, but if I could go back and, and change one thing, I would say definitely to be able to be more culture-driven focused and build out that initial culture because when, you get, when you're growing, that, that's very difficult to do. It's always something that you, you kind of, it's forced upon you later on in the stage, later on in the, in the process. But to have a mindset that you can focus on that in the earlier stage would be, would be something that I wish I could have done. So that's definitely something I, if I could go back, I, I'd, I'd definitely change. Well, well, last question, Liam. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing, right? They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Continue to focus on the problem that you're solving. I think, you know, there's the, you, you're bound to hear hundreds of different reasons and opinions of, you know, what the actual solution will be often from those who have never actually experienced a problem, which is definitely something I think most founders go through. So my advice would just be, you know, if you really are passionate about a problem that you're solving and you, you, you see that bottleneck and you see what a meaningful problem it is, it doesn't have to be the grandest problem of them all. Um, it often never is. It's often the very simple things that, that, that resonate as particularly with founders. If you really are passionate about what you're solving and you, you see a use case, you see a solution that makes sense to you, um, and to the people around you, um, I would say continue on that path and be instead of being grand focused, be hyper focused. Focus, focus on a, on, a, on a small level first. You know, you often be pushed off to focus on the bigger picture all the time. But you know, ignore it. I would say focus on what you're trying to solve. And you know, I, I honestly believe if, if you can provide us a little bit of value in the world, that's 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 rewarding within itself. That is solid advice. Well, Liam, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Krepling. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.